take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Hebrews. This evening we're beginning Hebrews chapter 5. It's been quite some time since we've had the opportunity to look at this book of the Bible together. Most recently, we spent time in chapter number four examining that warning passage, studying that, coming to conclusions on that, its relationship to concepts like the Sabbath, and in the far distant past, all the way back in chapter number one, the author begins by exalting the Lord Jesus Christ above all things. In fact, throughout this entire book, the author's intent has been to progressively tear down strongholds and destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. His goal is that every thought of the reader's minds would be captive to obey Jesus Christ. The simple motivation behind such a purpose is simply that Jesus is better. He's better and greater than angels. He's better and greater than Moses and the law. He notes that there's great need for perseverance and endurance against the hostility of the world. But Jesus Christ provides every resource for such endurance because he himself endured such hostility from sinners. He is described as the captain and source of our eternal salvation. And more than that, this author teaches us that Jesus needs no supplement. We need not look to some combination of Jesus and the law, Jesus and angelic revelation, or even Jesus and a human priesthood. Already in this book, we've been introduced multiple times to the concept that Jesus is a great high priest. This is a proposition that Jesus is the culmination and pinnacle of what the priesthood accomplished under the old covenant. In our chapter this evening, though, chapter number five, we begin to hear the argument of the author in earnest regarding the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. The main sweep of the argument is that Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood. This concept will again be taken up through chapter 7, 8, and then the sacrifices of this priest in chapters 9 and 10. And so what we're beginning in chapter number 5 is the beginning of a massive argument, rich, full of helpful gospel truth. This evening... We're only going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. Even just this small portion is a rich passage. It contains way more than we can adequately understand or discover in this one setting. Every week that we look at the book of Hebrews, we have collectively bitten off more than we can chew. The goal, however, this evening is to help us understand what the framing of the house looks like so that in your own study and meditation, you'll be able to furnish it on your own. Now, we're going to ask four questions of the text this evening, all of which center around the central proposition that Jesus of Nazareth is fully qualified to be our great high priest. Jesus is fully qualified to be our great high priest. 
And the four questions we're going to ask are very simple, and they're as follows. Why do we need a high priest? Number two, what are the qualifications of any high priest? Three, how is Jesus in particular qualified to meet my needs through his priesthood? And then number four, based on this passage, what benefits do I receive from his priesthood? So we're going to begin our time this evening by reading Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. Would you follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read out loud? For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people." And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Would you join me in prayer briefly as we ask the Lord to help us in our study of his word? Heavenly Father, we are in desperate need of your help and grace right now. Would you please open up your word to us by your spirit's power that we may understand the truth that you've revealed to us about the way the world actually works. And I pray that we would derive great spiritual blessing in believing it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. The first question we're going to begin with this evening is very simply, why do we need a high priest? Now, this is helpful for us to consider because we often might look at a passage like this and think to ourselves something along these lines, this is awesome, and it's great, and I'm glad for it, but why exactly? Why can't I just be saved apart from some high priest doing things for me. I mean, Jesus died on the cross in my place. I understand that concept. Why can't I just, as an individual, just get saved then? What function does the role of a high priest serve? Is that necessary at all? Why do I need a high priest? And this is more of like a contextual question. It helps us understand the background to even understand what this author is talking about here. But I think we need to remember three different truths about why we need a high priest for our salvation to be effective. We can put it this way. Unless you have a high priest, you won't be saved for the following reasons. Reason number one is this. God deals with individuals 
on the basis of the work of a qualified representative. God never merely deals with you as you. In all of uh, revealed history, from the Garden of Eden until now, God always works and deals with individual people by means of a qualified representative. He works by means of these covenants. We see this all throughout Scripture. We see this, first of all, in the Garden of Eden, because God placed all of humanity under the curse of Adam's sin because he represented humanity. That's what Romans 5 teaches us, is that the reason we can receive the righteousness of Christ at all is because we were actually represented in sin by Adam first. And so you and I are automatically born into this world, treated by God as a result of the representation of Adam who was ordained to represent us in his willful decisions before God in the garden. We also see this played out in the lives of Abraham and the patriarchs. Apart from every other kind of person, Abraham and the patriarchs had the unique position and quality and ability to make intercession on behalf of other people. You think about even the kinds of foolish decisions that Abraham and Isaac made with respect to uh, the kings of Egypt or uh, the Philistine uh, war chief when they're lying about their wives being their sisters so as not to be killed on account of the beauty of their wives. And God, because he deals with those people and those nations on the basis of his representatives in Abraham and Isaac strikes those people with plagues and so on and so forth, which can then only be removed on the basis of the intercession of the representative. We see this in the life of Job, as at the end of the story of Job, God requires that punishments be lifted from Job's friends on the basis of Job's representation of them to God, to priestly ministry. And we see this most clearly in the line of Aaron as the high priest of Israel and in his descendants. God deals with individuals on the basis of a work of a qualified representative. That is one of the truths and doctrines of how progressive revelation works, of how our, our faith works, of how God has always worked with humanity. But secondly, we need a high priest because true atonement depends on it being offered by a qualified representative. You see, a sacrifice is no sacrifice if offered improperly. Although the sacrifices were animals, they had to be offered by the right kind of person, the kind of person we were just discussing, the qualified representative. And a representative of humanity has to be human himself. This is what we've been focusing on in the preaching of John 1.14 over the past couple of weeks. This is why Jesus needed to be both God and man, because his sacrifice is invalid if it is offered in a way that does not represent his people well. That is, he can't be high priest and offer himself as a sacrifice unless he himself is truly human. True atonement through the offering of a sacrifice depends on the qualifications of the one offering the sacrifice. And then thirdly, 
intercession, blessing, and mutual fellowship with God, your entire daily experience of fellowship with God, we call it your walk with God on a daily basis, always happens through the work of a qualified representative, whether you realize it or not. The result of a qualified mediator going to God on behalf of the people with an acceptable sacrifice of atonement results in open fellowship with God. It's the work of a mediator that allows for the blessings of having a relationship with God at all. God's blessing and favor being poured out on your life, your standing with God that allows for true love shed abroad in your heart, joy and peace in believing, intimate communion with God as you draw near to him. These are all dependent on the prior work of a representative. We see examples of this in the Aaronic blessing. We read it as our benediction this morning. But it was actually something that Aaron was commanded to speak over the people of Israel as a pronouncement of God's sovereign intention to bless the people. And it was a result of his priestly work in offering sacrifices. The ministry of Aaron in offering gifts and sacrifices for the people, opened up the way for him to be able to pronounce the benediction upon God's people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. On the basis of his priestly ministry, Aaron could bless the people, and the people could respond in joy and worship of the God who had redeemed them. Now, let's consider this passage before us, Hebrews chapter number 5, and ask ourselves, what are the qualities listed of an effective high priest? What is true of a genuine high priest? What are his qualifications? We know, we found already that We need a high priest. Now let's ask, what are the qualities or qualifications that mark a genuine high priest? Let's look back at Hebrews 5, 1 through 4 again. Let's let's read that again together. Would you look down at your scriptures, verse 1. For every high priest, notice the qualifications here, chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Verse 3, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. We're going to take these qualifications in the order they appear You could break them down a multitude of different ways. We're going to divide them into two major categories and then kind of point out some details of each one along the way. The first major qualification of two for being a high priest, a genuine representative of the people to God is this, that you would carry a sympathetic ministry, a sympathetic ministry. Look down at verses one and two. See that the high priest is a man who can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. How does this ministry of sympathy and compassion work itself out? 
Well, it works itself out in a couple of different ways. First is through the representation of a like nature. We mentioned this just a minute ago, and so we won't belabor the point. But know, first of all, that in order to have a sympathetic ministry, it seems to be an obvious qualification that the representative would be like those he is to have compassion on. It's very difficult to truly have uh, uh, this kind of empathy and relatability to those whom you represent if you're not genuinely one of them if you are not like them. And so the first thing that must be true, or the first quality that must be true of a sympathetic ministry is a representation through like nature. The high priest had to be a man. He had to be human. But secondly, there had to be compassionate performance of priestly duties. And this is a really fascinating one. Look down at 2 and 3 again, verses 2 and 3. It says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this, He's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. The high priesthood is not a desk job. His role is not merely to fill a sacrifice quota, nor is it to just perform required tasks like an assembly line. His is a work of shepherding. The high priesthood is not merely a role of taking certain pre-written requests to God on behalf of the people. No, in order for there to be genuine high priestly ministry, the author of Hebrews tells us that there must be a heart of compassion that performs the duties of high priest out of a genuine love for the wayward. The very nature of the role of high priest also presupposes that the people he represents are wayward. If the people were not out of step in their relationship to God, they would not need a high priest or a representative. But his work is one of compassion and love for those wayward sons and daughters. Now, the phrase ignorant and wayward that we see there in verse number two, very likely that phrase refers to the sacrifices that were provided for sins committed in ignorance. That is, the high priest could help those who were conscious of their need and repentant. And how is it that Aaron, the high priest, could compassionately shepherd those who had gone astray? Well, the answer is in verse number three. Aaron, in particular, representing the entire priesthood, was able to be compassionate because he himself was beset with sinful weakness. As a result... He offers a sacrifice for his own sin first, and then he offers sacrifice for the sins of the people. Do you remember that Aaron is the same high priest who accidentally created a golden calf as an idol for the people? The people cast in their gold at his direction, and man, it went so much further than he ever intended it to go. Out pops a golden calf, and the people start worshiping it? Ah. Aaron knows what it is like to be ignorant and wayward. He knows what it is like to be in need of atonement for sins. As a high priest, then, he is able to compassionately perform all priestly duties. And I would suggest that Aaron is able to compassionately perform duties even over those whose rebellion is outright. Do you remember that in the incident of Korah, following God's judgment of Korah, 
the story did not end, but the people then took up Korah's cause against Moses and the leaders of Israel, and the plague began. And the Bible teaches us that Moses and Aaron ran and stood between the living and the dead in a role of intercession. On what basis would Aaron put his own life under God's curse in order to stop the curse falling on those who had rejected him? It was on the basis of his compassion toward the ignorant and wayward because he himself was beset with weakness. He needed atonement for his sins. And so he was able to compassionately deal with those who needed it. We also see that in addition to a sympathetic ministry, a high priest had to receive divine appointment. Divine appointment. Look at Hebrews 5.4. Look at verse number 4. It says, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now this verse teaches us a couple of principles regarding how a person becomes a high priest. The first is a very general principle, and it's this. Relating to God is God's prerogative. Relating to God is God's prerogative. What does that mean? It means that you are spiritually unqualified to approach God on your own initiative. Do you remember in the story of Esther, how Esther feared to go before the king and continued to kind of create these diversions and feasts in order to distract the king from her true request? What was the basis for Esther's fear in her approach to Ahasuerus? Her great concern was that in the courtroom, she did not have the qualifications to approach the king on the basis of anything in herself or in her own standing. And in a much greater way, you are spiritually unqualified to take the initiative with God. If you are going to have a relationship with God at all, in any way, shape, or form, God must be the one not only to take the initiative, but to establish the parameters of the relationship and to define how that relationship will go and look. And so we find out in this passage of Scripture, which exegetes, interprets the Old Testament, that there's no such thing as a high priest who's a high priest by his own calling, because it's absurd to think that anybody can approach God on their own prerogative. Relating to God is his privilege, not yours. But it's also true from this, this principle, this truth in Hebrews 5.4, that you specifically are spiritually unable and unwilling to approach God on your own. The Bible teaches us that beyond merely being unqualified, your sinful condition is so great that apart from a work of divine initiative, you would have no desire to come to God at all. Romans 3, 10 through 18 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, listen, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive 
The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Brothers and sisters, that is you apart from divine initiative. So a high priest can only become so by divine appointment Firstly, because of a relationship with God is God's prerogative, but also because God determines the qualifications necessary to become a high priest. This is helpful for us to understand because there's history here. And the author is assuming your knowledge of the history in order to make the points he wants to make. In the Bible, we see the qualifications necessary for the priesthood most often through the election of a particular family. Seth was chosen over Cain. Abraham was chosen over his siblings, Nahor and Haran. Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Jacob was chosen over Esau. Levi was chosen from among the tribes. Aaron was chosen from among the Levites. And the line of Aaron was chosen by God to specifically be the physical line through which the high priestly line was to be maintained. So to recap, the qualifications that we see in this passage of Scripture in verses 1 through 4 to be a high priest are performance of a sympathetic ministry and a divine appointment. Now finally, in our message, let's ask the question, how then is Jesus qualified to meet my needs through his priesthood? Let's read again verses 5 through 10 to understand this. Verses 5 through 10 of Hebrews 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. First, Jesus is qualified to meet my needs through his priesthood through his divine appointment to the office. This is made clear in verses 5 and 6. Look at that section again. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son today, I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we've seen already that one cannot become a high priest apart from the divine appointment to that office. So far, so good. The author has marshaled the Old Testament scriptures to prove the point that the Messiah was called by God to fulfill a high priestly function. And we've further seen, though, that the divinely chosen line to fulfill the high priesthood is that of Aaron. And this creates a little bit of a problem. Do you know what the problem is? The Messiah was prophesied to come from the line of David, who was from what tribe? He's from the tribe of Judah. 
Christ is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's called David's greater son. He's the shoot that springs up out of the stump of Jesse, who is David's father. But what was Aaron's tribe? Aaron was from Levi. So if we definitely need a high priest in order to represent us to God, effectively, if our effective atonement for sin depends on a qualified high priest, and the high priest has to come from the line of Levi, then how can Christ be qualified to be our high priest since Matthew and Luke both painstakingly document very clearly that Jesus is from Judah? What's very fascinating is that there were segments of Judaism that also recognized this little discrepancy, so to speak. Some scholars suggest that perhaps the author of Hebrews was even writing to a particular group of Jews in this church that he's addressing who recognized and had solved this problem in the typical way of Judaism that had grappled with it. You see, within Judaism, there was a group that suggested or recognized that Messiah would come from Judah to be the prophesied king, but that there would also be a need for a high priest to represent the people to God. And so what they actually held to was something of a two-Messiah system, where there would be one to come from the line of Judah, and then another Messiah to come from the line of Levi, one to be the king and assume David's throne forever, and one to be the culmination of Aaron's line as high priest. Now that's an interesting solution to the problem. And no doubt these Jews did the best that they could with the revelation God had provided. But the author of Hebrews presents something else as a solution to the problem. And his solution is not something clever that he came up with out of his own head. It's actually a divinely inspired interpretation of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Both of those psalms, which are quoted in this passage of scripture, are messianic psalms, clearly recognized as belonging to someone greater than a mere human. That though the authors had immediate human applications, they spoke better than they knew or else had a vision of divine nature. These psalms refer to God's Messiah. Now, we can't look at both of them, but we are going to take a closer look at Psalm 10. Would you briefly turn to Psalm 10, 110 with me? Psalm 110. We're just going to read the first four verses of Psalm 110 together and make a couple of comments about it. This is a Psalm of David written as a divine prophecy regarding God's will for the Messiah. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this psalm alone deserves its own exegesis and interpretation. We can't explain everything about this passage. It's rich, it's deep. 
But notice that in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 110, God emphasizes the kingly reign of the Messiah. The Messiah is granted a seat of power by the conquest of his enemies in verse 1. The king then actively rules by his divine right over all the people. But then skip down to verse number 4 and notice that this king is also an eternal priest. But how is the Messiah also a priest? Because he's a priest not from the order of Aaron, but from the order of Melchizedek. Now, what in the world is the significance of Melchizedek? And is that even allowed? How can we just all of a sudden swap from Levi to Melchizedek? In the Old Testament, we have three special offices that carry divine authority for the people of God. You have the prophet who speaks from God to the people. You have the priest who speaks from the people to God through sacrifice and prayers. And you have the king who rules over the people on behalf of God in righteousness and justice. Each of these is a divinely appointed role in the scriptures that is intended to communicate certain things from God and about God. They're pictures of God as well as his administrative offices to govern the earth. But when these office holders are sinful people, the powers are separated. A sinful, rebellious king can and has done massive damage through the unjust, immoral exercise of his authority. We also have examples in the Old Testament of wicked priests who usurped their powers and manipulated them for their own gain, and rebellious prophets who refused to speak the word of the Lord or spoke, spoke the word of the Lord in the wrong time or in the wrong context. In our own country, our founding fathers had a desire to separate powers so that it would not be concentrated too closely in a fallen, rebellious person. In the same way, God separates out the divinely appointed offices, but in Christ Jesus, there is no such need. In Christ, we have one who holds all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And in this passage of Psalm 110, we have emphasized for us by David under the inspiration of the Spirit, the combination in the Messiah of priest and king in one person through the precedence that was set by Melchizedek. Now, this concept of Melchizedek is important, but it's actually going to come up in much greater detail in chapter 7. So we're going to leave off a detailed study of who Melchizedek was and how his title as priest-king fits into all of this. But for now, just understand that Jesus was actually prophesied to hold his office of king and priest simultaneously, just like Melchizedek did in his office of the priest-king of the city of Jerusalem in ancient times. So, the point in all of this is that Jesus' first qualification to his own role as the divine priest is his divine appointment by God to be both king and priest for you and for me. But secondly, Jesus is qualified to meet your needs by his priesthood, by his sympathetic ministry for his people. We're going to see in our passage now three ways that Jesus is qualified to be your high priest through his sympathetic ministry to you. The first way 
is that Jesus sympathetically ministers through the offering of sacrifices and gifts on your behalf. Look back at Hebrews chapter number 5 and see verse number 1 again. In the qualifications of the high priest, see that every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now again, this is a concept that's being introduced now that will come up again in chapters 9 and 10, but it's referenced throughout the whole book. The sacrifices of the high priest are described as ineffective because they were just the sacrifices of animals. But Christ came as the Lamb of God himself. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 says, And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Friends, Jesus offered a sacrifice for you through his death on the cross. And as Aaron would kill a lamb to atone for the sins of the people, Jesus Christ shed his own blood for you. The Day of Atonement it was a yearly event of bloodletting. But the Day of Atonement has been finally fulfilled on one day through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. However, beyond just the sacrifice of his body on the tree for sins, the author is actually kind of bleeding a couple of concepts to here because he wants to emphasize something. So actually look down with me at verse number 7 because verse number 1 gives us the qualification, but look at verse number 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. The sacrifice that's emphasized in this verse is not the offering of his body for sins, but the offering of prayers. Most likely, the author is thinking of the agonized praying of the Garden of Gethsemane, but also in view here are the sacrifices of prayers that Jesus offered up throughout his life and is offering up on your behalf right now. At this moment, Jesus is performing a sympathetic ministry for you by praying for you before the Father. We see an example of this kind of a prayer in John 17, which is often called the high priestly prayer. Recognize from verse number 7 of Hebrews 5 that Jesus did make a sacrifice for you, primarily through the offering of his body, but in this passage, through the offering up of prayers on your behalf. Not only does he sympathetically minister through his sacrifices, but he sympathetically ministers through his experience of suffering. Look with me again at verse number seven. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications, look at this, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. The phrase loud cries and tears means something with great strength and articulation. These were exceptionally loud cries in prayer to God. Great tears. The tears of our Lord were not silent moments of grief for him. Rather, in his tears, it accompanied the outpouring of his heart before God. 
most likely the Garden of Gethsemane is in view here. Although we shouldn't think that Gethsemane was the only instance of Jesus dramatically wrestling with God in prayer during his life. Now, I want to just spend a moment on this concept of Jesus' suffering, and I want to briefly hit on three different ways that Jesus sympathetically suffers on your behalf through his ministry as high priest. The first is through his physical suffering. The prayers that are described in Hebrews 5-7, which have reference to the Garden of Gethsemane, are in anticipation of the trial of the cross. The physical trauma of the cross was brutal and on par with the very worst that a human can experience. In the garden, he was in anticipation of the exceptional pain that he would experience. And on the cross, he prayed out loud in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus also sympathetically ministers to us through his experience of emotional suffering. Obviously, again, the garden is the clearest, most obvious reference to this. The emotional and mental stress which Jesus underwent was so great that Jesus himself described his anticipation of his coming trial as being such a weight upon him that the stress alone could kill him. And so he needed prayer from his friends as he himself prayed. Jesus also went through the suffering of spiritual assault. As the book of Hebrews has already told us, Jesus was tempted in all points like us, but without sin. And it would be a mistake to think that temptation began and ended in that wilderness period. Jesus experienced temptation his whole life. He knows what it is like to be assaulted with every bit of ammunition that Satan has. Jesus can provide a sympathetic ministry for you when you're in physical pain. He knows it well. He is infinitely compassionate to your heartbreak and your feelings of being overwhelmed by grief and stress. He himself was beset by a grief and apprehension that almost killed him. And he is not severe in dealing with children who are tempted by sin. Jesus was assaulted by Satan himself in every area of human vulnerability. But we've seen that Jesus sympathetically ministers to you and to me through through the offering of sacrifices and through the offering of his own sufferings. We also want to see finally that Jesus sympathetically ministers by providing an example of endurance. Through all of these things that are here, and there's so much more to discuss and talk about. Jesus not only sympathizes with us, but he effectively leads us. Friends, to be in a right relationship with God, who would show us the way how to live in that? Do you realize that It's one thing for your sins to be justified and that it is another for you to know what to do with the righteousness which Christ has provided. How do I live? How do I live before the face of God with an indwelling spirit? What am I supposed to do when I get up in the morning in my relationship with the Lord God? Don't you know that my trials are great? The physical pain is debilitating. The spiritual assault which I am undergoing 
is as great as anything I have ever experienced. And one of the great purposes in the sympathetic ministry of your great high priest is that Jesus, in the midst of all of those stresses and griefs and pressures and temptations, has pioneered a path to safety. This is the significance of him being tempted in all points like we are, but without sin. He learned obedience through what he suffered. It means that Jesus, in his will, had to choose every day as a man to trust his heavenly Father because he had willingly surrendered his access to omniscience and omnipotence and self-existence itself. He lived every day by faith. And under the most intense of circumstances, in every category, physical, emotional, and spiritual, Jesus clears the path to victory, comes back for you, crouching in the shadows, grabs you by the hand and says, follow me, this is how we can escape. He does this through fervent prayer. Jesus, in his hours of greatest need, did what he did even when the same thing that he did on the days of ease and plenty. Jesus prayed. And do you know why he prayed? Jesus didn't pray just to be an example to you. Jesus prayed out of desperation because he needed his heavenly father to provide, and that's the example for you. His prayers were not mere words. The tears he cried were not crocodile tears. His anticipation of the cross was no forced drama. Jesus cried out to the Lord for hours over one request because he desperately needed his God to work. And friends, the author of Hebrews is trying to help you understand that no matter the difficulty or situation in your life, whether spiritual assault from Satan, the tempter himself, whether it's life-altering physical pain, or whether it's an emotional stress that begins to change the way that your brain is wired, Jesus sympathetically ministers and knows how to preserve you in holiness through every obstacle. He who learned obedience through suffering was made perfect and has become the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. Let's bow for prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for the opportunity just briefly to examine a passage of Scripture that is so rich and beyond us. Lord, I pray that you would take these few short words and inspire to greater study and meditation on the riches that you've provided as our high priest. Thank you for your prayers for us. In Jesus' name, amen.